Well, usually when news explodes out of the B.C. legislature, it's political. It has to do with legislation or members of the assembly or MLAs. Wasn't quite the case this past week. Certainly there was other news coming out of the B.C. legislature, but uh, the photos that were being posted and the reaction was after a couple of female staff members at the legislature were told that what they were wearing wasn't appropriate. In one case, a woman was told to wear a slip because her skirt apparently was too clingy to her legs. And in another case, a woman was told that in the hallways of the legislature uh, having bare arms, uh, shoulders was not appropriate. It has certainly caused an uproar. And the good news, I suppose, coming from that is uh, they are now looking at the dress code. However, the response that was issued by Speaker Daryl Plekis did not really put the item to rest. It actually raised more questions about it. So let's bring in somebody else who can talk about this and about where we go from here now that we have the conversation started about dress codes and what that means. Amy Robichaud is the Executive Director of Dress for Success Vancouver and joins us on the line now. Amy, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, What was your response as you saw this unfold? Uh, Well, my initial response is, here we go again. This is yet another example of women facing barriers in the workforce that are oftentimes considered invisible. Um, And uh, I wasn't surprised by it, not because of the BC legislature, but just because this happens in, in workplaces across the country to women every day. And this is a workplace where women exist for sure. Uh, and then my second reaction was, I'm glad we're getting to have this conversation. And I'm actually gl- grateful it was happening at the BC Legislature with members of uh, the Fourth Estate, as well as our as those who are responsible for policy in our province, because I think we get to have a more meaningful conversation about the kind of microaggressions or the multiple invisible institutional barriers that women face in terms of uh, full workforce inclusion and economic inclusion in our province. And you make, you make an interesting point, because when we talk about uh, the, the workplace and we talk about inequity, we often focus on wages, we focus on salary, on work of equal value that doesn't, that isn't compensated in the same way, uh, promotions, uh, a culture that perhaps isn't as inclusive as it should be. Uh, but we don't often focus on dress code or focus on how somebody dresses and how that uh, improperly can be used against them. Well, and I think I think what's interesting is that, you know, dress codes or written or unwritten codes of cultural conduct in workplaces do feed into those larger bits of inequality. You know, it is not surprising to, to anybody who works in the space for women's economic inclusion that women in Vancouver still make on average $7,000 a year less than men. Um, it's not because of dress codes, but uh, unequal or inaccessible or cultures that are defined primarily with the male ideal in mind do feed into the systems of, um, of behaviors and inequities that make that, that help make that wage gap continue to exist or that employment gap on the front end continue to exist. And here's the best, exa- the best sort of tangible way I can give you of that. When dress codes are working their best, they can do one of, one of or more of three things. One is allow individuals to perform their jobs. Um, their job functions. So specialized uniforms in terms of dress code allow them to do that. Although earlier we saw this week NASA failing that aspect of their dress code entirely when they didn't actually have enough suits 
for their women astronauts to be able to do a spacewalk. The second function that a dress code or a, a culture or a code of a professional attire can do is allow individuals to feel confident and capable in themselves and in what they're doing to excel in their jobs and, and focus on their work. We, you know, we all know, you know, no matter how you identify the power of a great, you know, a great outfit, when we've chosen it ourselves and are putting it on, how that can make us feel um, and, and perform at a higher level. And the third thing that a, a, a well, um, you know, cultivated and collectively agreed on um, dress code can do is convey and create respect and inclusion um, and, a, and a common culture amongst everybody that's inclusive within the workplace. When dress codes do these things, they can be huge assets to um, increase productivity, innovation, and goals and excellence in your work and in, in whatever you're doing, no matter what the workplace is. And I would hope that's where we want to be with our BC legislature. What happens so often, though, is that they become something that women in particular have to navigate or be policed by or just another thing that we have to worry about before we get to work in the morning and even while we're there. And any time I have to spend as a woman one additional bit of energy or any little bits of additional energy thinking about things that aren't my job in order to exist to do my job, I'm already on an unequal playing field. And so uh, poorly thought out uh, codes of conduct or dress codes um, or codes, uh, and in this case, codes that really just default to the male ideal, uh, which this one has done and many do, um, they help uh, perpetuate this additional emotional and intellectual work that women have to do just to show up at their jobs. Um, and then they're already starting with an additional burden on them. And it's not the only case that we've seen even recently. If we look at uh, some comments made by the Chilliwack School Board recently about uh, how female students were dressing, and, and somebody brought this up to me too, saying, you know, it's so... It's just so infuriating that if somebody shows up at school and you happen to be wearing a shirt that shows a bra strap, when did a bra strap become such an offensive thing? And, and to be saying that, oh, but by doing this, you're being distracting uh, to men. To me, that's a problem on the men, not a problem on the women. It's absolutely a problem on how we are framing um, the, the, the aesthetic of, of female bodies. We frame it as how it impacts the men in our society as, more, as opposed to how it impacts the women. Um, and, so the, and that's not new, right? Anybody, any woman or girl out there, you know, we experience our bodies being policed every day in terms of wear this, don't wear that, um, in terms of even having a pop culture that tells us what we should and shouldn't do or how we should and shouldn't look. We don't need that in terms of a dress code. And a dress code or a code of professional attire that perpetuates that kind of policing isn't helpful. And it's really missed the point of why we would have this kind of of, um, code in the first place. It can be particularly damaging for, I think, young girls who are still trying to figure out how they feel about their bodies and about themselves. Um, and for me, this comes down to a lot more than a bare shoulder or whether a cap sleeve or a three-quarter length sleeve is appropriate. That's what sparked this conversation. But this is really a conversation about the right for women to exist um, on an equal playing field in the places where they work and contribute to our society and our economy. Um, which comes back to why I'm, I'm grateful we're having this conversation. What we know at Dress for Success in Vancouver, um, which is a nonprofit organization that seeks to have greater economic inclusion and workplace participation for women all across the lower mainland. Um, What we know is that uh, dignity and self-confidence for women is a a huge, 
huge boon to their ability to enter the workforce and stay in the workforce. We also know that there are institutional barriers that exist that, that prevent women from having the same level of economic inclusion as men have. And that's not just bad for the women who are missing out. It's bad for our whole economy. You know, we've been around for 20 years. In that time, we've put 32,000 women back into the workforce, which, you know, if you look at medium wages for women, et cetera, uh, you know, puts about a billion dollars back into our economy. But when you also look at how much less women will make, that means we've also left half a billion on the table. So this isn't just about women or young girls. This is an issue that affects our whole community um, and our and our whole economy. And, and I think anytime we have an opportunity to figure out how do we all do better and lift everybody better, um, we should take we should definitely take advantage of that. Um, to bring this right back around, perhaps what's happening in the BC Legislature. There's a really simple solution to this, and it's to you know sit down collectively and inclusively and figure out. Why do we want a dress code? What are we trying to convey to each other and to the world? How, how is it going to help us do our jobs better? Um, and what are the appropriate uh, parameters to put around that? And as long as that's built as a whole culture for everybody who has to engage in that workplace, that can be a real advantage to the, the legislators as well as to the, the, the individuals who work there to support them, cover them, um, and to bring our province forward as our government is supposed to do. All right. uh, Excellent points. So we'll have to leave it there. Amy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay, you you too. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the negotiations between the B.C. government and the Association of Legal Aid Lawyers. And that was before the vote was even taken for job action. Well, we now know that there is an interim agreement to head off job action that was supposed to or scheduled to start on Monday. And it would have limited or suspended the provision of legal aid services. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Francis Mahone, a lawyer with Francis Mahone Law. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, Does this uh, fix the problem, or does this at least give uh, some breathing space to look at the issues when it comes to legal aid? Well, we're very pleased because it is a gesture of good faith from our provincial government to help improve service for really vulnerable folks here in the province. And so what will it actually do as far as the job action won't start as as it was supposed to? Will it mean uh, things are business as usual? It will mean things are business as usual uh, for lawyers like me who take legal aid cases. Uh, essentially, it's a 25% increase across the board uh, until the fall with negotiations continuing in the meantime between our association and between the provincial government. And uh, once the fall budget is announced, uh, we're hoping to see uh, stronger increase that will help support our legal service delivery. Uh, So can you walk us through what a day would look like or or what it is like being a lawyer uh, in the legal aid system as far as the workload and, and some of the issues with that? Sure. So I'm a criminal defense lawyer and I also do refugee and immigration services. So my day can really vary depending on who I'm helping. Uh, so in terms of my refugee practice, I help newcomers who've just come to Canada. They often don't speak English and they're experiencing incredible trauma. They might be fleeing war or sexual violence um, and they've arrived here in Canada and they really need somebody to hold their hand and guide them through the process. So it might be a day in my office talking about that person's uh, background and helping fill out the forms and paperwork necessary to make their claims. Uh, I might be at the Immigration and Refugee Board for them. 
Uh, for my criminal clients, uh, a day might be, you know, showing up in the jail cells one morning for a person who's never spent any time in custody before, uh, and I might be the first friendly face that they've seen in 24 hours and present significant relief to them and help explain what's going on in their case and how we can help them. And, and then as a lawyer, then, how do you bill for that time? Uh, so I... Um, through legal aid, uh, my contracts are with them, and uh, so we either get uh, hourly rates billed, uh, or for many criminal cases, they use what's known as block fees, which is part of the problem for us, because uh, in a criminal case, uh, everything that would lead up until the first day of trial, we would get paid a total of $120 to do that work. And so that might include you know, five or six court appearances, meeting with clients, negotiating with Crown prosecutors, and uh, often, you know, getting paid less than minimum wage when you break it down on an hourly scale. Which I guess would lead people to, I mean, it's a very, it's an important service. It's a necessary service. Uh, Why would lawyers choose to, to go into the legal aid system when you could make much more money and find it far more lucrative doing other cases? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's true. But I think for me and for many of my colleagues, we're really driven by a passion to help people. We all swore an oath to provide the best possible service to people who are in need. And I take that very seriously, as do many of my colleagues. And I think we find a lot of satisfaction in helping people when they're at these desperate points in their lives. Uh, do you feel, though, can you do enough? Like you said, you might be going to court appearances, spending time with paperwork and helping people who are trying to navigate uh, a very complicated system. Uh, uh, is there enough time? Are you able to do enough, do you think, in these cases? Well, I end up uh, working very long hours. I would certainly never shortchange a client just because they're a legal aid client. Uh, so what it means is that we end up doing a lot of unpaid work for clients. And uh, so that means long hours and big caseloads in order to make it uh, financially possible to do it. And so getting back to uh, the interim agreement, so the 25% increase in payments that legal aid lawyers will receive uh, during the six-month period, um, and you, you talked about some optimism with the budget coming out. What else do you think, though, is needed? What would be a permanent solution here? A permanent solution would be uh, government just realizing just how essential legal aid services are and making a long-term commitment so I can continue doing this work throughout my, the rest of my career. Is there anything else, do you think, though, that could be streamlined in that? Um, are there cases that, that maybe are in the court system that shouldn't be in the criminal system or cases that if there was maybe another office for them or another a, a way to streamline it, could, could, that, could there be, um, I, I guess, time? Uh, could, could there be a better way of doing things? Well, the fact is, is that there's always ways to improve efficiencies in the system. And I think as our courts modernize, a lot of that will start to happen. But in my experience, having a lawyer there is already going to improve efficiencies. You know, for somebody who's there by themselves without a lawyer, that tends to slow the process down. Whereas with a lawyer there, we can help narrow the issues for the judge and keep things moving along at a rapid pace. Uh, do you think one of the things uh, from talking about this, so at the vote on job action and that, has, has it at least brought it into the, the forefront in that I think unless you've been in the legal system, unless uh, you're a lawyer or you're somebody who's had to access uh, the system or access a legal aid lawyer, uh, it seems like it's something that's not really top of mind. 
And that's absolutely right. And what I hear a lot from my clients, especially my criminal defense clients, is, oh, I never thought I would be in the office of a criminal lawyer. And, uh, and so, and, the, and they end up learning an incredible amount through that process. So I'm hoping that uh, through the job action and through our association's work, it will help shed a little bit of light on what we do and the realities that our clients face. Uh, do you think that legal aid, does it cover the, the right amount of people as far as those who can access it and access a lawyer like you? Uh, is that part of the system working okay? Uh, part of the issue is also that the income cutoff is very low. So you pretty much have to be on social assistance or on disability payments uh, to be able to access legal aid system. So, you know, people who are still below the poverty line in British Columbia often can't qualify for legal aid services. So I'm hoping that's something the government will also look at is uh, uh, lowering that limit so that more people can access these services. And do you, do you find, is it difficult for you as well or for lawyers to get that message out there in that there, there tends to be uh, maybe uh, a, a misperception of lawyers? People might think, well, you make so much money in other cases. What's the big deal if you're working legal aid cases where you're not making as much? Well, I don't think uh, anyone who's greedy is taking legal aid cases. We're not here to get rich. And, uh, uh, but, the, you know, the reality is, is that I'm a, a lawyer, but I'm also a small business owner. And so uh, out of the, uh, the work that I bring in, you know, I need to cover my office rent. I need to pay for my staff. Uh, I need to pay myself at the end of the day and, and cover all of that overhead. So uh, I think any small business owner looking at the situation of legal aid lawyers would actually be pretty sympathetic uh, once they actually saw that breakdown. Oh, exactly. And, and I mean, small business owners, uh, depending on where you are, I mean, property taxes alone, we know, depending no matter what your small business is, uh, those can be crippling. Absolutely. Uh, what, where do we go from here then? As the six-month period, uh, things, the, the job action has been averted. Uh, do we wait for the budget or what happens next as far as ensuring that in six months time, you're not right back to where we started? Well, negotiations will be continuing. Um, I can't really speak to what the association is doing. Those negotiations are happening uh, behind closed doors. Uh, But I have great faith in the association. They've already done an excellent job. And I have faith in our provincial government because they have given us this gesture of the 25% increase. And uh, good, and that is good news as far as uh, the um, uh, the uh, job action that was scheduled. Uh, I'm curious that when you talk about cases, uh, particularly refugee cases, uh, have you seen a big increase in the number of cases? Uh, I've been practicing now for uh, just under five years. Uh, I have seen an increase over the past two years, definitely. Um, and I'm not really sure what the reason for that is. I think there's a lot of global reasons why more refugees are coming to Canada. I think the need is very, very great for legal services in that particular community because you're not only dealing with a foreign legal system, but you're also dealing with foreign language. And you're just trying to settle into a new city and, and make it life for yourself. And that's something that lawyers can actually help connect people to other service providers like social workers and schools and that kind of thing. So with an increase then in that, I would imagine there's also a an increased need uh, for for newer lawyers to get involved in this. Do you think there is there enough of a push, or will this help uh, attract newer lawyers to do more legal aid cases? 
I think so. And I also think that it tends to be newer lawyers who do take legal aid cases. And, and that's been the tradition for a long, long time in the legal profession. Um, and But part of the issue with uh, decreased legal aid funding is that we're seeing fewer and fewer senior lawyers taking on legal aid cases who can provide mentorship and advice to newer lawyers as they are, are making their way through. So I'm hopeful that we'll actually see an increase in lawyers taking legal aid cases at all stages of their careers. All right. Very uh, interesting uh, perspective on this. Thank you so much, Francis, for joining me. Hopefully in six months, uh, maybe we can chat again and it will be uh, good news then as well. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Well, if you've been following along when it comes to ride hailing and ride sharing in this province, uh, you know that today the Cater app will start test launching. And this is... Cater is a, a company. It's partnered with the Vancouver Taxi Association. Eventually, it plans to put out about 140 ride-hailing cars, or that's uh, sorry, that's part of the testing phase of this. And uh, drivers for Cater do have to have certain benchmarks. They have to have the Class Four license. They have to have the Taxi Host program, a clean driving record. Uh, the cars will be cleaned daily, much like taxis. Uh, they're not the personal vehicles of the drivers, so it is more like a. Ta- Taxi service, but it is the first uh, app like this that has been okayed to start testing. So, when might we see Uber and Lyft or other ride hailing? Well, we still don't know. So, let's bring in Ian Tostenson, who is with Ride Sharing Now for BC. Ian, great to have you back on the show. Hey, Mitchell. Great to be here. What do you think about the fact that Cater is uh, test launching and uh, doing so well before any other ride hailing is here in BC? Yeah, and I think you, you nailed it. It's uh, it's basically a taxi cab uh, fleet with an app. And we've seen that before in Vancouver where the taxi companies had an app and um, they had some struggles with it. I don't think Cater is going to struggle with their app. But we're talking here in context about an, an addition of 140 cars in Vancouver on a fleet size. That's about 900 cars. So if you look at that, and then you look at, um, I was just looking at some stats, we're expecting over a million people in the next three months on cruise ships. So I think now really what Cater is is going to help maybe some of the local markets, but they're not big enough and they don't have the number of uh, cars to really handle anywhere close to the demand that we have in Vancouver. There's been some talk about the fact too that this is this is really it is it's more like a taxi than it is like a ride hailing like an Uber or a Lyft. Uh, we also saw in this past week uh, the transportation minister uh, taking the recommendations of the all party committee, looking at this, um, not accepting them as they were put forward. And one of the big sticking points seems to be the whole class four license requirement. What do you think that's going to do as far as if Uber and Lyft are going to come here? Well, you know, um, breaking news, we had a, the best meeting yesterday uh, with the Minister of Transportation within the, uh, the sort of uh, a lot of the companies that are involved with ride sharing now. Uh, it was at her request. And um, I tell you, Jill, it was, the, it was the most upbeat, lively meeting we've, we've and actually the first meeting we've had with her directly. And um, she was honest and straightforward and she addressed all the points. So, um, uh, in the recommended recommendations, there's about four of them, three deal with number of drivers, geographic areas, and rates. And she just talked about those quickly, and she made the comment that, you know, we understand we need flexibility in the system, which I think, which I think is, is okay with them. Um, you know, and, and they, by the way, they, they do sincerely want to bring in ride-sharing. And she told, she told us that 10 times yesterday. 
Now, the point on the licensing is interesting, class four versus class five. And we had one of the representatives with us was the, the president of um, the student councils, uh, student union councils in British Columbia, where they represent 130 students. And that's the kind of um, bulk that we need to become uh, drivers for Lyft and Uber. And if you put a class four in front of them, it's the obstacles are quite high from a cost point of view. Maybe from a timing point of view, it could take up to three months. But what we said to the minister yesterday is we understand the whole issue around safety. We, of all people, want to see safe streets. Um, but we want to see ride-hailing that deals with, you know, more cars and safer streets with, you know, less drinking, driving, et cetera. So we proposed uh, with her a made in BC solution for that before. But from us working with government on a Class 5 plus which we believe, and we told the minister yesterday, actually builds in some, some stronger safeguards from uh, uh, Class 4 licenses. It allows the flexibility to get people to populate it, i.e. women, because we see in Alberta, because they have a Class 4, there's only about 3% of the drivers in Alberta are women, where typically should be anywhere from 30 to 45%. So um, <clears throat> she didn't say yes. She didn't say no. Um, she learned, she said, I, I learned an awful lot from, from the group today. So I think that um, uh, the, the takeaway was that uh, we expect applications for uh, ride-sharing companies to be able to put their applications in this summer. And she said we will have people um, doing traditional ride-hailing by the fall. So I trust her, I take her at her word. Um, she, was, um, she was really forthright. I, I thought it was awesome. And I think... We made a, a big strides with it yesterday, got on the same page. So I think we can deal with the licensing thing. And um, pretty much from there, you know, it's just a little bit of, you know, there's so much administration to deal with this. She explained to us all the different legislation and rules and stuff that had to change. Like, it's horrendous, but they're almost there. They're feeling very proud about what they've done. We support that. So I'm going to bet that we're going to see uh, traditional ride sharing the way that we talk about it, you and I and everybody else with, with Lyft and Uber before Christmas. Wow, well, that is uh, that is upbeat and positive sounding. Uh, did you guys talk about, though, some of the other issues were about government trying to regulate the number of ride-hailing vehicles on the road at any one particular time, how far they could go? Uh, because those things uh, were also part of the so-called made-in-BC solution, but seemed rather restrictive. Yeah, I think they didn't, you know, she didn't say, hey, it's, we're going to accept that recommendation, but it is a strong recommendation from the committee, which was the Liberals, NDP, and, uh, 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 and the Greens. I, I don't think they have a problem with that. I think they understand that. Um, it, it, the other meeting we had this week was kind of interesting, is TransLink absolutely favors share uh, uh, ride, ride sharing because that gets you to them and, and then from them home very easily, so it completes their loop. And the minister understands that as well, too, because when you look at trying to expand transportation in general, you really can't do it with the taxi industry. You have to have ride sharing to otherwise we're going to be faced with congestion and building more roads and trying to get more SkyTrain. And so she understands that. I think they're thinking now is that ride sharing um, does a couple more things is it serves uh, communities outside of Metro Vancouver, which sometimes don't even have a taxi. And number two is a, is a very important component to creating the loop. So you you get in your, your Uber, you go to the SkyTrain, you go to Surrey, you know, you get on your uh, Lyft, you go to your next destination. So it completes the journey, and it's a lot safer for everybody. So she's, she understands that. And, um, yeah, she's, she was really – I think she's feeling very proud 
that she's uh, gone through this process to get it to to where it is right now. Uh, and what about the issue of wages? Because the Cater app, the drivers uh, that drive for Cater uh, have to make at least $20 an hour. Uh, well, do you think there'll yeah. be a similar uh, shelf, a similar cutoff for, uh, for, say, an Uber or a Lyft driver? I don't detect that, and I don't know, and this is my own personal comment, how you could possibly have a system where you have part-time drivers and regulate that. Um, <clears throat> the difference with Cater is that they're, they're hiring drivers to work for Cater, and so very much like you would work for uh, Yellow Cab. So they're employees. In the case of ride-sharing, the big difference is, and it's been challenged around the world, I get that, but is that you are your own uh, boss. Um, you're, you know, you're making your own money. You're an independent contractor. I think, you know, we didn't talk about that, but I think it's very difficult to take, you know, potentially thousands of drivers and, and make sure they're getting minimum wages and stuff. If they work for, as an employee of a ride-sharing company, then it's a different matter, but... You know, we're talking here average, you know, three to four hours per week is the average ride-sharing driver. You know, they, they put it on and make a little bit of money. And it's a completely different model than driving for Cater, where you are, as I said, you know, traditionally like a taxi driver uh, picking up rides downtown. <clears throat> and you mentioned, too, this idea of, of maybe a Class 5 Plus rather than the full Class 4. What would a Class 5 Plus look like? One of the things... Um, so what it does avoid is it, um, uh, it, it, it would, in theory, avoid having to go back and be road tested again. And that takes a lot of time and ICBC can back that. But what it does do is it would recognize by your what they call your driver's abstract, uh, a, a driver that has a good, uh, solid uh, level five or class five, uh, excuse me, record and also is over 19 years of old, 19 years old. And then we build in, you know, the criminal checks and everything else that goes with that. Notwithstanding that, Joel, you know, the, the ride-sharing companies, they have their own criteria, which adds on to this. But uh, where Class 4 doesn't, we would, we would require people to report their driver's abstracts every year as a checkpoint. Class 4 doesn't, doesn't uh, require that. And so it's... Um, and it, it, we'd also uh, would want to be a lot stricter than Class 4 uh, with respect to... Um, uh, criminal convictions for unsafe behavior like impaired driving or reckless driving. So we would propose a three-year ban for a drunk driver uh, in um, in some cases in other provinces, a 10-year prohibition. So I think if we can give uh, the, the minister something that's even tougher in terms of standards and safety than what Class 4 does, and but gives the flexibility to allow people like you and I and everybody else to, to, to access a ride-sharing uh, Class 5 plus license to populate the system. And I think, uh, you know, she, she did say she was, she really felt strongly about uh, class four and she is, but she's open to us making that presentation. So we're going to do the best we can to, uh, to do it. The other thing about, um, uh, we talked about medical exams and, and I didn't realize this well I didn't now, but um, in British Columbia, your doctor is required to report any significant material medical issues to ICBC um, if they feel that that would get in the way of your driving. So there's some built-in safety checks that we already have in BC. And by the way, that doesn't exist in Alberta. So they don't have a system where the doctors have to report that. So Class 4, gets so complicated, right? <laughs> class 4 makes more sense in Alberta <clears throat> than it would necessarily in British Columbia. 
All right. Well, hopefully uh, we are talking about this in the fall of this year and ride sharing and ride hailing is here. Uh, But uh, until then, I'm sure we'll talk about it again. But Ian, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Have a great weekend. All right. You too. Well, if you've spent any time walking around, driving around, cycling around some of the major streets in downtown Vancouver, you've likely seen what appears to be an increase in the number of people who are camped out on the streets, sleeping on the streets, living on those streets. Well, my next guest certainly has noticed that, and he wrote a column about it in the Vancouver Courier. Michael Geller joins us once again. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, so what prompted you to write about this? And it's getting a lot of reaction, but what was it uh, that led to you writing the column? I have noticed, uh, like so many people in Vancouver, that over the years there have been an increased uh, number of people, especially in the downtown. And uh, those who know the intersection of Burrard and Georgia know that there's usually people camped at all of those four corners. And while I won't pretend to be the most compassionate person in the world, I do. uh, I think like most people, when you walk by and you see those people, you do feel very, you feel sorry for them. You feel uncomfortable. You're curious about their stories. And over the years, as you know, I used to work for CMHC and was involved in building housing for the uh, for people who are homeless and hard to house in the downtown side and elsewhere. I was involved in putting forward the idea of the modular housing. And I'm pleased that that's working in terms of housing people. But it bothered me that we seem to have become so complacent about people in the streets. And as I left your studio last week or two weeks ago, there right in the middle of the sidewalk at Granville in Georgia was somebody just lying there. And everybody walked around him. Nobody stopped. He wasn't looking for money. And I thought, this, it really is time to have a public conversation about this. And so I wrote the column. And the column also includes uh, some of ideas, uh, some ideas about solutions. Uh, a couple of the things you just mentioned, uh, but you're right. People have have come to accept it. I think that people are going to be in sleeping bags. People are going to be sleeping. Uh, the new plaza in front of the art gallery. Uh, every morning when I come to this station, I'm out very early in the morning. Uh, there's always a lot of people uh, sleeping on the new benches uh, in that plaza area. Uh, even in the chairs, the the chairs, people are sitting in those chairs sleeping. Uh, so what do we do though? to help to get people that are in that scenario into some kind of housing? Well, I think the first thing is a public conversation with the Vancouver Police Department and with the politicians, because what I am told by members of the police department is that they, at least in the past, have been told by council and councillors not to enforce any uh, bylaws or not to move people around, to just simply leave them alone. Now, in many other cities, that is not the case. And, of course, uh, whenever somebody does try to move the homeless or or hide them, uh, of course, that generates a great deal of of criticism. But I think the fact is we need to have a discussion now as to is it the city's policy to simply let people accumulate uh, in increasing number? Because... At the same time as I was looking at the people along the Granville Mall, I was thinking about the people at Anita's place in Maple Ridge and also the people who were along the, the streets in Surrey. And, my, and what goes through my mind is how many people would it take? If there were 60 people down the Granville Mall, 
at that point would the city decide to take action? I think we should have a discussion. I hope that maybe CKNW would speak to the police department and find out what is the city's policy, speak to the mayor and council. And yes, we are trying to find housing. But that obviously is not the only solution. We need to do much more. Uh, Because there is a huge component as well, and not everybody who is sleeping on the street, but there is a huge component when it comes to mental illness and people that need a lot more than just housing. They need more services and help in that respect. They they do. You know, the interesting thing is many years ago, um, the synagogue that I belong to joined with a a, a mosque and uh, provided meals for the homeless over Christmas. And it, for me, it was an eye-opening experience because for at least uh, a couple of hours, I came face-to-face with these the, the very people that I generally walk by. Occasionally, I give money, but generally, I don't. But as I chatted to some of the people over the course of that afternoon, I realized part of the solution is, in fact, trying to help some of these people reunite with their families. Now, others have, want to have nothing to do with their families. That's why they're on the streets. But I did discover that many were, were interested in reconnecting with their families but didn't know how to go about it. So I wrote about that and subsequently learned the Salvation Army has a, what they call a family reunification program. So there's one, one approach. The other thing is a number of people would be interested in working and uh, the, uh, somebody sent me this week uh, a, a, home, a blog of a homeless person. It's fascinating reading, and uh, I'll post a link up on my blog. But again, he says he does try to work, but for many people, it's hard to get work if they don't have an address or if, you know, they're, they, they just look so unkempt, their teeth are bad. And uh, there are organizations, Embers is one that I've worked with, that does try to help employment. So my point is... Sure, I'm an architect, so housing is certainly one approach. But it's also treatment for mental illness, treatment for addictions, uh, helping people find employment. There are a variety of things that need to be done. And I think the city is aware of this, and the city is trying to do some. But for now, I'd like to know, why do we simply allow people to lie down in the middle of the sidewalk outside of CKNW, and let everybody walk by. One quick point, I spoke to a, jur- a journalism student about this broad issue, and he made an observation which was very interesting. He said the only people that he's spoken to who commented about this are tourists. Hmm. <laughs> because I, mean, I have received quite a lot of comments, uh, emails from uh, readers of the Vancouver Courier where I wrote the column, saying thank you so much for speaking out what you're saying is exactly what we've been thinking and we don't understand why the city isn't doing more so i and i don't understand either i i must admit i've not spoken to anyone to ask what is the city's policy i mean <laughs> that person lying on the sidewalk could have been dead oh, and uh, yeah I mean, and every and uh, we must do better we must do better. And you raise an interesting point. When there's one person there and and whatever it says about us as people we walk by, but you're right, if there were 10 people there or 20 people there, uh, there would be a reaction. So why is it we don't react to one? Yeah. And, and of course, that's exactly what we have seen happen in Maple Ridge, where, I mean, that's a much more complex situation. But again, uh, you know, I, I reviewed uh, all the columns I had written about uh, 
accommodating the homeless and doing better, uh, providing greater, broader services. And one of the columns I wrote when I was still trying to promote the modular housing idea was to say maybe instead of camping on streets, uh, the people should be camping in front of City Hall and camping in front of the B.C. legislature. Well, the irony is that the situation in Maple Ridge and in Surrey and in Oppenheimer Park, there's no doubt that housing activists are indeed uh, behind some of those encampments, encouraging people to, uh, to, to, to stay there and to gather there. I mean, the, the history of the Maple Ridge Anita Place uh, encampment is really very, very interesting in terms of how it came about. And it was indeed housing activists playing a role in promote, encouraging people to gather in order to get the government to act. Well, it's a a very interesting uh, column and you raise uh, a lot of very good points. We'll have to leave it there. I'm sure we will talk about this again. But Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for your interest, Jill.